Well, grab your Bible, and that's a hard act to follow, but a good act nonetheless. Uh, take your Bible and put your finger in two places, Matthew chapter 18, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, again, Eric and Nissa, thank you for being here this morning. You guys bless us every time you're here. Uh, you have great, beautiful hearts, incredible talent, uh, and you use it for... Uh, the Lord and for his church and we're grateful for that. You also have a really incredible hairstyle that I have enjoyed and respect more and more over the years. Um, you know, you, you mentioned that your three boys and Eli's your oldest and so you guys have experienced what it means, what it's, what it's like to have kids and uh, many of us in this room this morning, you, you've had children and You've gone through that experience, but it's something amazing about first-time parents and, and people who, who were in the delivery room and, and at the end of that long, tumultuous nine months of pregnancy. And all of that, you know, that, that nine months of, of really hard struggle for both the woman and the man, though she's carrying the brunt of that struggle. But when you get to the end of it and you're there in the delivery room and, and that little baby is born, it all is good. All is well as it's culminating in the birth of a child. And, and you know the child has been birthed and come into this world because there's this very definite shrill that comes out as that baby cries for the first time. When you think about that cry, why is it that the baby cries? Or better yet, let's think of it this way. What does that mean? I think one of the things that we are to gain from that or to learn from that is that when that baby cries for the very first time, audibly for us to hear, it is a call for care. It's a call for support and protection and love. And in that very moment, there's nothing else for those first-time parents than to offer that love. That love that brings protection, that love that brings support, that love that brings care to that child. When Kara and I experienced this for ourselves over 14 years ago, our oldest is now 14 and a half, and she just got on a bus with 38 or so other students and about eight or nine adults. That's why we're empty right here today. They're headed to camp. But 14 and a half years ago, when we were in that situation ourselves, it was a glorious and beautiful picture. We had no idea what we were doing as we entered parenthood. We'd celebrated and we'd walked alongside our own friends as they were having children, but none of that, think about this, really prepare, prepares you for being a parent. For us, and, and probably most people, we like children, meaning we love to hold children and play with children, and some of you are so crazy that you would say, I'd love to change diapers, I, I, even as my own kids, I never would say that. But we liked children. It was neat to observe the milestones that our friends were going through as their children took their first steps and they cut their first teeth and they worked through the potty training process. Yet we were setting as we watched this on the outside, looking in from afar. And so the affection that we had for our friends' children at that moment in our lives was different than the affection that the parents had for their children. And so as Kara endured a very agitated pregnancy. She simply longed for it to be over. Morning sickness had become a way of life for her. And then on one Saturday evening, unexpectedly, our baby girl decided to enter this world five weeks early. 
We had just moved from western Kentucky about a month earlier to northwest Alabama. I was the new pastor in a church. It was probably my third or fourth Sunday, and Haley wasn't expected for another five weeks. This was the end of January. She wasn't expected till the first week of March, and all of a sudden, Haley decided to come. Nothing's ready. Uh, literally, the nursery things were still in boxes stuck up in what would be her nursery. It's Saturday night at 10 p.m., and I'm supposed to preach the next morning, and yet here we are, two young, frantic parents rushing off to the hospital. Over the next several hours, we waited there in the delivery room. Labor pains were brutal. Anxiety was high. Anticipation was strong. Probably in the back of our minds, we were wondering about what's going to happen next, we probably were questioning our ability to care for the child we were about to hold. I mean, I had no idea what to do with kids other than hand them back to someone else. No longer were we standing on the outside at this point and looking in. Now we're on the inside. The moment for us was real. So when that doctor handed Haley to us, miraculously the pain was gone. Anxiety had dissipated and our anticipation was satisfied in the most precious face that we'd ever seen. As we looked down to that little girl, four pounds and 14 ounces that I could hold just like this. It was a beautiful moment. There was an instantaneous love for her that was none other than otherworldly. From that moment forward, we knew that her care, her support, her protection would be our focus because of our love for her. And it was immediate. You know, Parents in the room might understand this morning that precious and innocent little face very quickly turned out to be a little bit more rebellious. The, those wonderful, cute smiles and cooing morphed into a rebellious no as our infant turned into a toddler and entered those terrible twos. Can I get an amen to that? In this new phase of life, we were faced with the dilemma of balancing discipline with love. You don't discipline a baby when a baby dirties its diaper. You discipline a baby or a toddler when they say no. And so this is that balance that we began to have to jostle. The reality is that love involves discipline. And so if we were going to love our daughter and we did, then discipline would have to be a part of that equation. Regrettably, today our culture, I believe, by and large misses this altogether. Many people would view love as a glob of gelatin, something with no center. It has no parts. It has no hard edges. They think of it something... They think love is something that's free from all conditions and all expectations, all standards and all judgments. The bumper sticker, heart plus heart equals marriage, is indicative of that. Man, if we just have love, if we love one another, then it doesn't matter what's behind that love or who's behind that love. Let's just live our lives. But God doesn't give us that kind of freedom. So in the church even, we're tempted to pit love against law and truth. And so what, that ha what happens is we begin to divide the world into truth people and love people. Are you going to be the person that is, is just about the letter of the commandment or the letter of the law? Or are you going to be about the warm, fuzzy, lovey-dovey stuff? 
Bible would tell us that love and the discipline are integrated into one another. You see, the Bible never breaks it into this dichotomy. Listen to what Proverbs says about this. Proverbs 3.12 says, For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. Proverbs 13.24, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. And then Proverbs 19.18, Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. So these three verses tells us that according to God's word, failing to discipline our children is as if we hate them and forsaking hope for them when we choose not to discipline. It's literally being a willing party in their death. So when we withhold discipline, we're actually doing more harm than we would in the discipline because love disciplines. Out of love, Kara and I have had to learn to discipline our precious baby girl because she needed to know and to follow God's way of life. Proverbs 6.23 says, For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are a way, or are the way of life. Regardless of how clear the Bible makes the argument for discipline, any of you want to raise your hand for it this morning? Any of you want to say, Lamb, let's, let's roll the sleeves up and let's get to disciplining? No, no one likes discipline. We don't like to receive it, and therefore we don't like to dispense it. And so, unfortunately, as a result of that, discipline becomes something that's on the soon-to-be-extinct list. It's something that we're avoiding like the plague in our homes. It's, it's something that we avoid like the plague in our relationships. Who wants to go to a friend, a colleague, and, and point out an error or, or, or to bring up something that someone has said that's hurt you or hurt someone else and confront them? None of us want to do that. None of us enjoy that. We do the same thing in the church. Why is it that we avoid discipline? Could it be that we do not understand what discipline is and the benefits that it provides? Somewhere we are working through a series that we're just simply calling in the church. And we're looking at the role, we're looking at the function, we're looking at the structures of what God has designed and laid out in his word for his church. Because here's what we want to be as God's people right here in this local church called Red Lane Baptist. We want to be people who know the word of God and apply the word of God in our individual lives, in our families, homes, and in the church. And if we get those three things right, if I'm walking in God's way and I'm in my individual life and I'm walking in God's way in my family and if I'm walking together with God's people in a right manner, according to his word, then I'm going to also be walking those things out in the world. So we want to understand what God's word has to say and apply it to our lives. And so this summer we've talked about mission, membership, and attendance in the church. Today we're going to add to this list discipline. As Christians, we bring glory to God, as we've talked about a few weeks ago as we looked at mission. We bring glory to God by making disciples of neighbors and nations. It's interesting that in the Bible, God's people are never portrayed living outside the community of faith. We talked about membership and, and how important it is to be a part of the body of Christ, a formal, official member of the body 
of Christ locally. So there's no Lone Ranger Christian. Instead, what we see is believers needing to be together, that being the local church, therefore a commitment is required. And our commitment to Christ and his church, all of that is marked by love. Love. We call one another, we, we refer to one another as brother and sister. And I understand in some of your family relationships, that may not be a term of endearment or a term, term of love, but it's supposed to be. You're supposed to love your brother. You're supposed to love your sister. And so as we have committed ourselves together and officially joined the family of God locally, that is inherently important that we have love. Well, how do we love God and walk in obedience to him? The answer is largely through discipline, church discipline. Here's a statement I just want you to think about throughout the rest of this message this morning. A disciple is disciplined. A disciple is disciplined. Do you even see the, the nuance there and the play on words? Disciple, discipline, they have the same root words. A, a disciple is one who is disciplined. And so God does not regard love and discipline at odds with one another, but instead he teaches that love motivates discipline. The verses that I read earlier in Proverbs there, those four verses, make the point. If that's not enough, consider Jesus. Jesus loves us, but his love is not absent of discipline. Think about this. Jesus, according to John chapter 15, is the one who lays his life down for us in an act of mercy. And then what we see in John 14 is a call for those who are recipients of mercy to now walk in obedience to that. So there's the discipline to follow his commandments. He says, whoever loves me will obey my commandments, will follow my commandments. So as we think about this, a disciplined people demonstrates love and honor for God by obeying his commandments. And we think about this missionally, this is imperative because our world needs to see something that's distinct. Our world does not need to see a Christianized version of itself. The world that we live in, the neighbors that you live next door to, the people you rub shoulders with at work, the students that you're going to class with, they need to see a version of Christianity, a version of the gospel that does not look like them. They need to see a gospel that is a true gospel, and it's a picture of Jesus Christ and his church. That requires love, and it requires discipline. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, don't have time to read it this morning, but hopefully you're familiar with it. But Jesus there tells us that we're the salt of the earth. He tells us that we're the light of the world. Why would he use these two word pictures? Salt, think about it, is useful because it, it gives a distinct and flavor to the meal that we're eating. You go to a restaurant that doesn't really season stuff, what do you grab? You grab the salt because you want flavor in those dull mashed potatoes that were put on your plate, right? He says that we're the light of the world. People are drawn to light because light stands in contrast to darkness. Light is not the dark. So the corporate endorsement of our faith through membership and our participation in the church places us in a position to grow in our discipleship, and that happens through discipline. 
This is good and it's a healthy thing because it helps to ensure that our gospel witness is a good gospel witness before the Lord and before others. God is concerned about how we live for him and before others. Did you hear that? God is concerned about how you live your life for him and in front of others. It matters to him. Now you say, Pastor, are you saying that, it, that if I make a mistake or if I don't do certain things that I'm losing my salvation? We're not talking about that at all. But if you're genuinely converted, if you're genuine in your relationship with Christ, there's going to be a natural desire to live for God, and that's always going to be before other people. And so God wants your life to look like him. Why? Because you were created to image him. So when the world sees you, they should be seeing a picture of who God is. And the way you treat others, love others, the way you walk in his commandments, we're to look like God before this world. So this morning as we talk about discipline, we're talking about church discipline. And I can think we can all agree that discipline is beneficial. Think about the discipline you've received throughout your life, regardless of how old you are. You've received discipline from your parents. You've received discipline from your teachers and your coaches and your employer. You've received discipline maybe from the county officials and the sheriff's office. We won't, let you, we won't call for you to raise hands this morning on that. There's all kinds of discipline that we've experienced in various forms. And none of us enjoy receiving it. And we doubly do not enjoy administering it, which is why we so rarely see it in the local church. And yet, despite that difficulty, despite that hesitancy that comes with discipline, it is one of the crucial elements in our discipleship as a follower of Jesus Christ. And so, biblically speaking, again, I want you to hear, a disciple is someone who is disciplined. I got something going on in here. Matthew 18, look at verse 15 and through 17. Y'all awake this morning? All right, good. This, you, know, you saw the title, you're like, I'm going to snooze through this one. I'm going to yell louder so you can hear, okay? I'll just speak louder. Um, our sound guy, I think that's Adam up there, is going to pump up the volume this morning. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that, very, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, Jesus here presents to us a progression for how discipline ought to be carried out in the church. So what does he say here? He says, if someone has sinned against you, then what you're to do is go to that person. If it's uh, another brother, it's a sister, whatever the situation is, if there's been a grievance come to you or some sort of sin in some context that you've become aware, aware of, you go to that individual and you confront it. Hey, this is what I'm seeing. Hey, this is what I heard. This is what I felt. This is what I feel like you've done to me. Can we talk about this? Your desire in that is to win this brother or this sister back to the Lord. So in the, in the situation where there is a sin there, you're trying to confront this sin and lead that individual to repentance and faith. 
He says if he or she doesn't repent, if nothing is restored, if there's an unwillingness to listen, then go back with another brother or another sister, one or two people. And so now you're confronting with a with support, right? You're, you're bringing some others in and you're going to re-engage the situation all for the sake of bringing that individual to repentance and faith. And if there's still no desire to repent, if there's still no desire to make things right for the relationship to be restored, tell it to the church. So that the church who holds the keys to the kingdom as we've talked about now has a say whether or not this individual is portraying Jesus Christ in their lives through ongoing repentance and faith in their life. And he says, if there's still no repentance, then the church would then treat that individual as a Gentile or tax collector. What does that mean? Treating him or her as if they're not a believer. Right? That's what he says. That's the progression he lays out in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. So this progression for discipline is the pattern that we as a church ought to use. Unfortunately, churches fail to follow God's pattern, and when we fail to follow God's pattern, what happens? Someone's always hurt. See, anytime that you take God's word and you read it and you understand it, and yet you refuse to obey, obey it or abide by it, something bad always happens. Case in point, Genesis chapter 3. You ever read that chapter? Hey, everything's here for you to eat, Adam. Everything is for you, except for the one tree. Don't eat of that tree. The day you eat of it, you'll die. Next chapter, Eve's tempted. Adam is tempted as well. And they choose to disbelieve God's word, thinking they know best. And here we are today. So anytime we don't obey God's word, harm comes to you individually and others collectively. So churches fail to follow God's pattern. We move to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we see a case study for this. Look at verse 1. Just parenthetical here. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians is what we have in the New Testament. You're going to see in what we read in just a moment that there actually was a pre- uh, letter that was sent, a first letter. So your first Corinthians is technically second Corinthians and second Corinthians is technically third Corinthians from the standpoint of letters that Paul sent, though the first letter was not canonized or put into scripture. So just if you're New Testament scholars or wannabe scholars, that's for you this morning. Verse one, Paul says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Skip down to verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter. There's the re reference I was mentioning. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since that you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. So Paul here 
had instructed this undisciplined church in that previous letter on how they should and could recognize sin and to deal with it in the church. Well, they failed to hear it and they failed to heed it. And so rather than rebuking this man for his sin, what does Paul say that they're doing? They're applauding it. Man, we're not just applauding his sin, we're applauding us as a church. Look how loving we are, look how tolerant we are, look how we can look past this and we can see the good that's in it because they have an affection for one another. There's got to be something genuine there. No, it's flat evil, and that's what Paul's saying. And so Paul says you're to deal with sin in the individual because it's in the church. And they bear the name of Jesus. They're proclaiming they're a follower of Jesus, and yet their life looks nothing like Jesus. So Paul here scolds this church for their open-mindedness and calls them into mourning. So he commanded the church to remove the man who was sexually involved with his father's wife. Discipline we see in these two passages reveal the part we play as members of the local church in correcting and pointing out sin in disciples, pointing them to a better path. You see, to be discipled is to be dis disciplined. We, we're saying that over and over again because I want you to see it this morning. So let me give you two types of discipline that we see in the church. Number one we see is proactive. Uh, proactive discipline. This is discipline that is positive. We might call it formative discipline. This is the discipline that you have on a regular basis. It comes through the instruction of the Word of God. It may be viewed more, more easily viewed as a stake that's helping a tree that's growing straight or like braces on teeth to bring the crookedness back into straightness or, or maybe the wheels that are on a bicycle, those training wheels that help you not to fall to one side or the other. That's what formative discipleship is, is, or proactive discipleship. So this looks like this, reading the Bible. So your devotional life is part of your formative discipleship. It's you reading the Bible. It's you studying the Bible. It's you praying the Bible. It's you uh, engaging with others in the Bible and obeying the Bible and sharing the Bible with others. So bringing that mentorship or someone discipling you it's getting together and discussing the Bible, not for head knowledge, but for heart knowledge. How can I apply this in my life? That's that proactive, formative type of discipline that we see in the individual and the relational levels of life. You need both of those. Hey, why do we every single year choose a reading plan for you to read through the Bible in a year? It's because you need to know the Word of God. You see, the great, one of the greatest tools that God has given you is his word. You don't have to wonder what God wants you to do. You don't have to wonder how your life should look or what it should look like. You don't have to wonder, is this a sinful thing that would be dishonoring to the Lord or not? Because God has told you. We have a picture, a clear picture of who God is and what he's like. So you need to regularly read the word of God and engage with that word with other people. That's why the church is so important. So the proactive discipline operates at both the individual and the relational levels of life. And every truth that you've ever heard someone talk about is part of that formative 
discipline. It's proactive in nature. Second type is reactive. We're going to spend most of our time here because that's what we see in these two passages. So this type of discipline seeks to correct sin and disciple through negative reinforcement. We call this corrective discipline. Reactive discipline is confronting sin by pointing it out in another believer. Of course, the typical and the first reaction that someone would have to this corrective discipline is to bring in Matthew 7, 1, where Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. Have you ever heard that or have you made that argument? It's interesting that Jesus, as recorded in Matthew's gospel, says that in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, but moved to chapter 18, verses 15 through 17 that we read, and he's saying something seemingly altogether different. Judge not lest you be judged. Cast him out. Treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector. Whoa, how can you make a judgment and treat him as a tax collector if I'm not to judge to begin with? Well, it's because the contexts are different. In Matthew 7, Jesus is warning against hypocritical behavior, that behavior that was pharisaical in nature. So they would look at someone, the Pharisees would, and say, I'm holier than them. You remember the story that Jesus tells of the man who's in there? you got a tax collector in there praying. you got a Pharisee in there praying. And the tax collector is saying, thank God that I'm not like him. And the other man is beating his breast and saying, Father, forgive me. Right? So you have this mindset in Matthew 7 that Jesus is warring against saying, judge not from this hypocritical, I'm better than someone else mindset. Then you go to chapter 18 and the Lord's given instruction of how to rebuke a brother who's living in sin all for the purpose of winning him back to the faith. So there in chapter 18, it appears that Jesus had two main concerns. First of all, he was concerned that the sinner repent of his sin. Right? Every step, he's, he's, the goal is repentance. Secondly, he's concerned that the number of people that's involved in that discussion or in that situation remain as small as necessary. That's why he starts with a one-on-one. Hey, someone's harmed you, sinned against you, you go to him or her and confront. You don't go and tell it to the church first. You deal with it individually. If there's no reconciliation, no repentance, widen the circle a little bit. If there's still no reconciliation through repentance, broaden it even further. Just because Jesus gives us three main steps here doesn't mean we don't need to extend it a few more. I don't know that we always have to bring it to the church on the third step. That's the last resort. And so in some situations, that timeline may be bumped up a little bit, but it's all situational. But we want to keep the circles small because the goal here is not to harm someone publicly or to hurt them individually. It is to bring them to repentance and restoration with the church. But ultimately, if there is no repentance, Jesus says, treat him as a Gentile and as a tax collector. So that is the idea that we would term or describe as excommunication. We remove a person's membership. What does that do? You're also doing in that a removal of the Lord's table. So you're literally saying, we can no longer affirm 
your discipleship. We cannot affirm the fact that you know Jesus Christ. We're not saying you're not a Christian. We're not saying you're on your way to hell. We're just saying by looking at the fruit hanging from the tree of your life, there's nothing that looks like Jesus because there is no active ongoing repentance and a dying to self, but instead there is a lurching towards sinfulness, so you can't be identified as a follower of Jesus Christ. So we're going to treat you as a tax collector Gentile. We're going to teach you as a non-believer. Therefore, you can have no take in the Lord's Supper. You see, when we observe the Lord's Supper, which will be next Sunday, that is the fifth Sunday, right? I think. We fence the table in that every single time by saying this. This meal is for you if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There's been a time in your life when you've knowingly, willingly trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, repented of that sin, and now you're walking in that newness of life. So you need to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and you need to be walking with Jesus as a participant. Part of that is also baptism. So we don't say you have to be a member, but you got to be a member somewhere and in good standing to really take the Lord's table. So if you're no longer affirmed as a believer here, the Lord's table, table is not for you. So the church in doing so is declaring that due to this ongoing sin, this refusal to repent, the individual is giving no evidence of conversion. Thus, we can no longer affirm your profession of faith as being Incredible. So we excommunicate. In doing so, we never say you cannot attend here any longer. Right? Now, there may be some exceptions to that, and they are extreme, right? If a, if a person is accused of just heinous crimes, uh, predatory type crimes, and obviously there's no repentance or maybe. Perhaps even if there was repentance, we might be hesitant. But we would probably say, we don't want you on the premises here if you're a serial rapist or if you've murdered somebody and you still want to murder people, right? We're, we're probably not going to allow them back then, but those are extreme examples. But for the most part, when a person is excommunicated, we will never say you cannot attend. Why? Because we want them to attend. We want those who are not ed- uh, identifying with Jesus Christ and that being evident in their life to set under the teaching of the gospel and be drawn to Jesus Christ through repentance and faith. So we want them under the gospel. Therefore, we want them in or among the church when the church gathers, though they are not a member of the church. The goal in all of that is for the person to feel the weight of sin and be drawn back to Christ, therefore restored to the church. Discipline that's outlined here in Matthew 18 is, as I said, a long and drawn-out process. The process that Paul gives or the, the, the instruction that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 5 was not long and drawn-out. It's immediate. He says, put this man out. Put him out. I believe what we see in both these passages are two types of people, those who would repent and those who do not. Paul's rebuke of the Corinthians gives the purpose in this reactive discipline. Let me just give you uh, five quick purposes, and we're going to move on this morning. First purpose in reactive discipline would be to expose sin. Like Sin is like a cancer. It loves to hide, right? Sin likes to hide in the closets. Sin likes to hide in the dark, and so discipline exposes it. Why? So that it can be cut out. 
Secondly, discipline warns of judgment. You know, when we go through the act, 1 Corinthians 5, 5 really uh, portrays this perfectly. But when we go through the act of official discipline in a church, whether it's on one-on level, two-on-two, five-on-five, or the whole church, whatever level of that discipline, what we're doing, especially at the, at the for, fall, uh, uh, far end of it, excommunication, what we're doing in that is we're staging a play of the great judgment at the end, saying, hey, we love you enough now, brother, to bring judgment onto your life and into your life because we want to warn you of what's awaiting because the way you're living today gives no evidence of being a follower of Jesus Christ, which means you're in a very dangerous predicament. So if there's no repentance today, then you're one step closer to the great judgment tomorrow. But if you'll repent today, you'll be free from the judgment tomorrow. Did you see the picture there? So church discipline is a grace of God that warns of even greater judgment to come. Thirdly, it aims to save. So the dis discipline is arm-waving, warning of danger ahead, and calling for corrective action. It's like a, a person that's standing out there on the road where the bridge has gone out, and they're waving their arms so that you don't drive off the cliff. I was a youth pastor right out of college in first, at First Baptist Fort Smith 20-something years ago. And one Sunday morning over in Vianne, Oklahoma, so Fort Smith sits right on I-40, right on the Oklahoma-Arkansas state line, 40 miles away in Vianne, Oklahoma, a barge going down the Arkansas River hit one of the pillars and knocked the bridge out. And people at that moment were driving across the bridge, had no idea, because it was kind of foggy that Sunday morning, it was kind of cloudy and kind of cold and dreary, they had no idea what was in front of them, and they just plunged off into the Arkansas River. I think 40-something people might have died, if I remember. It's been a long time. And so when we engage in church discipline at any level, what we're doing is saying, hey, there's danger ahead. The way you're living is not good. The way you're living is leading you to a place you don't want to go. Fourthly, it protects others. Just as the cancer is going to spread from cell to another cell, sin will quickly spread from one person to another. And, and so part of church discipline is God's grace to the church to squelch that sin so that it's isolated and it doesn't spread throughout the church. Lastly, it preserves the gospel witness. Discipline serves non-Christians because it keeps the church distinct and attractive. Verse 1 there in chapter 5. Remember, we're called to be salt and light. And if we lose our saltiness... What are we good for? We're good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So church discipline keeps us holy and fit in a world that's looking to see if our gospel is true and legit. So as a church, we ought to practice reactive discipline. This means that as members, we must learn the skill of how to confront sin privately and tenderly. See, we dare not bring the hammer out for every single sin. That's not what we're talking about at all. We're not saying if you sped to church this morning, by gosh, you better get your booty up here because we're going to tar and feather you this morning. I don't think I sped this morning. I learned my lesson week one here, 2015, that if you speed down 60, sometimes you're going to get pulled over. And uh, I was going to meet Tim Gresham. Where's Tim? You're sitting on the wrong side today. <clears throat> I was going to meet Tim Gresham out at uh, the, the store there at Trent Home, and I... Running late because I was trying to sell the house in Alabama, I got on 60, right out here on 60. And, uh, you know, it feels like an interstate. So I just, 
I get, subconsciously put my foot in the accelerator, and uh, sure enough, that deputy was doing his job, and he turned around and pulled me over and was gracious enough to let me off. Because usually, when you say something about being a pastor, you're going to get a ticket. <clears throat> At an Alabama license plate, he says, are you passing through, or are you just moving? And I said, man, I've just been here one week. And... Um, I'm the new pastor at Red Lane, and, and I don't know why I got off, but somehow I got off with a warning. And man, I want to kiss that guy today <laughs> on the cheek. <clears throat> don't know why I said that. <laughs> so we want to learn and cultivate the ability, the culture in our church, to ask and to allow ourselves to be asked questions. Where would our discipleship be personally if we were willing to give permission to others? You know, somehow it came up in small group before I think we officially started this morning or something. And um, just the idea of why people would attend and never formally um, go through the membership process. And I, I made the statement, I really do believe this, that I think one of the underlying issues is you don't want to give permission for someone to speak into your life. It may be subconscious, but I've been doing this long enough and I've, I've worked with thousands of people over the years. And I think that's one of the underlying things. We want, we want to be individuals who have license to do what we want to do. And we're not going to give permission to other people. But that's not the picture we see in the New Testament. That may rub your roll this morning. I don't mean it that way. But I believe that's the honest to God truth. And I think scripture would back it up. And so church discipline from the congregation should, think about this, be reserved for sins of significance. And such that the church can no longer feel able to affirm a person's confession of faith and able to affirm that this person is rightly representing Jesus Christ. And so the decision to move toward excommunication is always about jostling or, or balancing or examining the dynamic between the sin and the person's posture of repentance. Sometimes they're seen to have repentance, but maybe it's only for a season. It's a, it's a difficult thing to work through. It's something that you don't take lightly. But we don't want to take it as it's this sin versus a smaller sin, so we're going to bring it before the church. It's not that at all. It's more of has this person demonstrated no desire to walk in repentance and faith? And if that's the case, that's where it escalates up. Does that make sense? So in other words, we're not going to put the person who's... Um, running a stop sign up here and say, hey, confess your sins to the church. You know, the Bible says confess your sins one to another. We're not going to do that. Now, if the person is running stop signs every single day and has a glove box just piled full of tickets that he or she's not paying, and, and we've talked to him and we said, man, that's not a good representation of, of you or the church in this community. How does that represent Jesus Christ? Then we would probably, if there's still no repentance, at some point bring him. But it's not because he ran a stop sign. It's because there is an area of his life he refuses to repent in. So it's not so much the sin, it's the attitude towards sin that leads it up the food chain. Does that make sense? So it needs to be significant. <clears throat> Three factors, let me give you for public discipline. I, I need to land the plane. 
First would be outward. The sin must have an outward manifestation. It must be something that can be seen with the eyes or heard with the ears. So we're not trying to read people's minds or look into their heart, right? We don't know those things. But if there's something that is outward, it's evident, there's um, credibility to it, such as the example I just gave. Here's a guy that's not paid parking tickets for three years, and he's got a pile of them, and he just absolutely refuses. That's an outward thing. People can see it. You can see it. You can hear it. We would bring that. Someone's caught in adultery and is unrepentant to that. So we're not going to bring an adultery case before the church just because you've committed adultery. I have friends. I know people in multiple states who got pregnant in their teenage years. I'm thinking of one family in particular. Got married. There was a struggle there. But when that young couple, not married... Uh, engaged in that sexual act that led to a child, that church flat out blistered them. And it scarred them for years. And so because they did one thing, they tarred and feathered them publicly before the church. I think that is church abuse. Right? I've heard a song yesterday for the very first time called Church Hurt. I sent Trevor the song, and I'm like, is he talking about what we're talking about this morning, or is he talking about being hurt by others in the church? And I think that's where he's laying. But, but we can abuse people in the church if we drag them out every time they sin, right? So we're not going to bring adultery before you as a church unless that brother or that sister refuses to repent of that adultery and continues to engage in it. Then there's a need for that. So it's got to be ours. Secondly, significant. So the sin must be of a kind that leaves the church wondering whether or not they can really affirm that the person is a believer. So I think you might get that from all the examples that I've given. We're not just laying out little things. No, it's significant. There's a pattern of refusing to repent. And then the third would be unrepentant. The church in all of this is not to engage in reactive discipline to get back at the person. Here's what I don't want you to see in this is that discipline is reactive discipline is penal that that corrective discipline is penal in nature in other words we're going to put it to them right we're we're, we've got a jail cell somewhere back here on the back 40 of our lot and and for those brothers or sisters who are not going to repent they got five days in the slam that's not what we're talking about it's not penal in nature so what's the purpose of church discipline it's restoration Look what he says in Matthew 18. I know we're landing the plane. Here we are. Matthew 18. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you. What does that mean? If he hears you and repents. Right? That's the implication there. If he says, I am sorry. I, I maybe didn't know that. But I acknowledge that. I'm sorry. Forgive me. What does he say? You have won your brother back. You've gained your brother, is what the ESV says in the translation. So the goal in church discipline is never penal. It's restoration. We're not seeking to punish people. We're seeking to restore people. How do you restore them? You first got to point out the wrong. Point them to correction. Pray for them, encourage them to repent and turn from that and make things right. And then you can be restored in that relationship. That's the goal in church discipline. 
So it's redemptive in nature and exercised with humility and love. So let's talk about restoration real quick. Let me give you two factors. These are really simple. How do we know when we can restore someone who's been excommunicated from the church? That's what we're talking about when we talk about restoration. They've been excommunicated from the membership of the church. They're no longer allowed to observe the Lord's Supper with us when we take that. Yet there's been a a, a, a transition in his or her life and repentance has been sought, demonstrated. But when do we know when we can restore them to membership again? Here's the first thing. We can restore them when there are signs of genuine repentance. Now, how do you know if it's genuine? There's no hard and fast one way or the other. You got to know the person. You got to walk with them for a while. But at some point, when you as the church and the people who've been working with them specifically see in their life that there has been genuine and definite changes to what is repentance? I guess we got to start there. What is repentance? So I'm walking in sin this way, right? I'm confronted with the gospel truth that warns me of the judgment that sin brings into my life, and I repent of that, and I turn. That's literally what the term means, that we're turning and going a different way. So as you're looking at a person's life, they've confessed sin, they have demonstrated some elements of repentance, but you know it's genuine when they're living differently. There's a pattern of that. So it could be somewhat instantaneous, it might be a prolonged thing, but at some point, as a church, we're going to say this brother or this person has demonstrated um, repentance, therefore we can affirm him as our brother once again. That's the point. Number two, two factors in restoration. The second is this, it's full and it's free. So once there is repentance and the church has decided to restore the repenting individual to his or her fellowship, there should be no discussion of any probational probationary period or second-class membership. No, you're restored as a brother or sister because you've already been on that probationary period, right? You've been, people have been watching, observing. Is it genuine? Is it not? But once that decision has been made, we should and we must affirm him as a brother. Boom, brother once again. No second-class citizenship. No wondering, is he going to fall back into that old style? And he might, but we got to be there to pick him up. Right? How many times do you fall back into old sin? So we're not going to treat him as a second-class citizen. Oh, I, I remember the day when she was doing that. I wonder when she's going to fall back into that. God help you if you think that way. You need to repent. So it's full and it's free. Why is that the case? i got to hurry. You guys got to listen quicker. I'm just kidding. Why is it full and free? It's because your salvation is full and free. Did Jesus ever treat you as a second-class citizen? No, full and free. Did he know you're going to make mistakes? He knows everything. He knows the mistakes you're going to make this afternoon. And yet, full and free embraces you. So this morning, as we think about church discipline, we are reminded of the beauty and the wonder of the delivery room. There's absolutely nothing like holding your baby for the first time, looking into those beautiful eyes. The love that you instantly feel is overwhelming. 
You'll move heaven and earth to care for, to protect, to support that little baby. Why? Because you instantly love that child. And yet there comes that day when that loving, beautiful, cute child that just steals your heart says no. And you got to bring discipline. Man, that kills you, doesn't it? I've never enjoyed disciplining my girls. Never. Not one time have I enjoyed disciplining them. In fact, I, I, I dislike it so much, I'm too lenient many times. Because I just, I just don't want to bring harm to their life. Now, there may be some laziness in there, but that's another sermon. But I just I don't want to hurt them. But discipline is one of the most loving things that we could do for one another. Speak into one another's lives. Hey, here's what I want you to think about. Am I open and available to others? Have I torn down the wall and allowed people to cross over to speak into my life? And am I willing to step over that wall into someone else's life? If you're not, we're never going to be able to live fully what God would have us to live as a church. Because mission and membership and attendance and all the other things that we're going to talk about the rest of this summer kind of sets in many ways on discipline. How transparent and vulnerable will we be with one another? Can we create a culture that says, man, you have the freedom to call me out? Because I know you're not going to call me out mean, in a mean way, in a hateful way, in a spiteful way, in a judgmental way. You're going to call me out in love because you want me to look like Jesus more than you want me to like you, or more than you want them to like you. Let's pray. Father, this morning, this is a, a difficult message, a difficult subject for us to, to, to work through, to, to ponder. And I think sometimes it comes down to that well, concept we are just talking about there. We, we just build up a wall because we, in many ways, know our inadequacies. And we want to put on a good facade. But Father, how can we ever grow into the full image of Christ? And how can we rightly represent you if we're only showing a small percentage of Jesus in our life? Because the rest is shackled and walled in behind a closed door. And we're not permitting anyone into that space. Father, I pray that we would be open and vulnerable individually. God, I pray that in that we would have a culture here in our church where there is the ongoing confession of sin one to another that's just fostering Jesus stuff. Help us. God, this morning, the confession that some need to make today is confessing you, you as Lord and Savior. Lord, every day we, or every week we set under the teaching of your word. It's not about who's preaching. It's about what's being preached. And so we set under that word every Sunday. God, there's probably some people here this morning that the next yes they need to say is to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray and trust you're working on hearts. Trust your timing. But Lord, your word tells us that today is the day of salvation. So for some, I pray that'd be the case. For the rest of us, Give us a heart for you and a heart for one another and a heart 
for those who are outside of these four walls. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stay- we trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.